Hello, I'm Jack Perks, wildlife cameraman, and in my spare time, I host the Bearded Tits podcast. Every Tuesday, I speak to scientists, celebrities, artists, and passionate people about the natural world. If you want a laid-back and easy-to-listen show, then tune in. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts, and I'll see you in the next episode. Cheers. Okay, here we go. Uh, Hello. It's been a while. And it? We're late. I know. I'm really sorry, everyone. Who's keeping track? I think some people did ask. Yeah, I know, (laughs) I know. I'm sorry to everybody that was wondering where the next episode was. It's been a combination of real life getting in the way of sitting down at a microphone. Mm -hmm. And I've been travelling all over the country. And it's We've both just had a lot on. We've had a lot on. We've had a lot on, and sometimes the plates are too many. And They're the turning spinning. and spinning. Yeah, and we dropped a few, and we didn't want to drop the podcast one. No, so we just no. held on to it until July. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we just went, we won't even f- spin it. <laughs> don't spin it, hold on to it tight. Everyone will be all right, don't worry. But I hope you're all Thanks well. Thanks for your patience. Nerds. Thanks for your patience. Super Very kind appreciated. Um Anyway, Nature Nerds, it's lovely to talk to you again. Welcome to another episode of Into the Wild, the podcast that says beavers. Great job, man. Great job. Keep it up. Pat on the back. Pat on the back with your paddle tail. I wonder if beavers pat each other on the back with their paddles. They'd be missing a trick if they didn't. Yeah. Oh, they must do. They must do because they get everything else right. So I can't believe they're going to f*** up that. Everything. It's really annoying. You'll never spot a beaver doing something wrong. Have Do you remember the beaver from Lady and the Tramp? No. What? I thought it was a film about dogs. Yeah, it is, but they go into a zoo, if you remember, and they employ a beaver to take the muzzle off of Lady's face. <laughs> Does so, what, he gnaws it off? Yeah, yeah. Well, not gnaw, it's one chunk. Just one, one chunk. Yeah. Wow. God, that hurt my teeth. See? Yeah, I know that. <laughs> That's what I was wowing. That's <laughs> <laughs> good that. beaver. No, excellent. Yeah, beavers are great. So, well done, beavers. Right, well, there's no Nature Room 101 this episode. Sorry to disappoint Nature Nerds. We're not doing it just because, um, as I said, we've both been very busy. We've not had a chance to give a social media show. And this out, is just, this this podcast is just the previous one extended, right? Extended. So technically this we did like, it at the top of the last one. Yeah, exactly. So this is filtering back in. And I will say, if you are a massive fan of Nature Room 101 and you're disappointed by this news, don't worry, we've got your back. We are live at Global Bird Fair on Saturday the 15th of July uh, for a live Nature Room 101 on the Osprey stage at 3pm. So Will if people you are... be bringing their 101s live from the audience, Rain? Oh, absolutely. Well, if you follow us then. on Instagram and Twitter at IntoTheWildPod slash podcast, we'll be asking some uh, for some topic and themes for you to suggest and we'll be reading them out live in front of the audience. And then we have three lovely guests in the form of Lucy Lapwing, Stephen Moss and Hannah Bourne-Taylor. Um, who will be joining us to share their rants about the natural world. So if you are keen to come to Global Bird Fair this year, please do come along on the Saturday and definitely see us on the Osprey stage at 3pm. And there you'll get all your Nature Room 101 goodness. All of them. But one thing we are going to do, Nadia... um, What? (laughs) (laughs) Everything is like a surprise at the moment. What are we doing? What? What? Hello? What? What? (laughs) um, I've got a feeling we're going to be World War II posh in this. Okay. <laughs> Before we press record, you're we coming kept talking through about strong, Ryan. 
And a great victory for Nadia Sheikh. <laughs> oh, there's a gorgeous, sorry, there is a gorgeous rainbow outside my window. Is that, is, was that meant to be a World War? No, that is a true real, real life. Yeah, I'm having an ADHD moment. <laughs> Continue. Um, we are going to do nature news. So we've got, <sighs> myself and Nadia have got two bits of news about nature from the last few weeks to share with you all and have a bit of a natter. So here we go to nature news. Right, Nadia, what have you got? Oh my God, what I've been holding it? this in for so long. This, so I know that this is old nature news. I'm okay with that because this was nature new. So this is nature olds. <laughs> this shrug. was news <laughs> when we were supposed to record this, but now it's an old. But it's okay, okay because it's worth talking about. Right, um, this is I the think... longest intro to any news story ever. It's not a news story though now because every, if you haven't heard about this, where have you been? What is it? <laughs> it's, it's the orcas who are going to save everything for us. So oh, this, the orcas that are like smashing shit out. This is the news that a pod of orcas has been seen repeatedly and strategically pulling <laughs> off the rudders and whatever undercarriage equipment a yacht might have um, <laughs> off the coast of Spain. And I love it. I love it. I love it. I don't know who doesn't love it. Yeah, everything about it. And I think there's various theories around there. Like there was a female that was damaged by the rudder or, or her. I don't know. I'm not a boating person, um, but some, some kind of boating incidents and therefore has told her family, um, <laughs> we need to... <laughs> We need Massively to we need to unionize, we need to organize and we need yep. to bring down the rich. We need to sink the rich to save the world. I love yeah. it so much and recently there has been a report in Scotland of a similar thing happening so it could be spreading. This is scary times. Isn't it? Because it's it the ocean's biting back. The ocean is biting back. I'm and whether that's just in the form of orcas. Sea levels rising. <laughs> sad um but yeah the orcas yeah so we we can be happy about this because it's like leisure boats they're going for i assume i'm i mean the boat it's in tens of boats right so it's quite a lot maybe 60 70 um i don't know whether some of them could be small fishing vessels but there are a lot of pleasure yachts which brings me a lot of sitting and reading pleasure and i guess um i guess it's interesting in a few ways just generally on like a big meta level we can't keep doing shit to the planet without something kicking back and it's also a reminder it's a reminder that our kin in nature are intelligent they can organize they have feelings they remember they can teach each other things they can learn and they can pass messages on i think Sometimes humans have just got to be humbled. We are humbled in so many ways when it comes to what mm. we're doing to the natural environment and whether that's effects of global warming or whatever. But, but I, think, <laughs> I think it's just one of these really... Be- I think also as well, right, the meme, that, like this generation, I say this generation, I'm old now, but like my <laughs> generation was a free willy generation, right? So yeah. orcas are already really deep in our heart on a really traumatised level from, from seeing free willy. Yeah. So I think. So do you think we we naturally side with the orcas? Do you think our generation? Oh, that's interesting. I think, I think if you don't naturally side with the orcas, you own a yacht. 
I think this is universal. <laughs> I think this is universal. <laughs> no one that owns a yacht will ever side with an with an orca. No. I no. yeah, I'll put unless I'll you're put out there. Score on that. Get in touch. Yeah, if I mean, if you're listening to this podcast and you own a yacht, that will surprise me. <laughs> that, that will be one of the most surprising bits of news. Um, I just no, think, I think it is gorgeous. It is. It is. It, do you know what? They're biting back. And you are right. I think there comes a time where human beings need to learn that we are not more powerful than the natural world. Sometimes getting in the sea and going two and a half miles down to see an old ship that sunk in 1912 is not the best idea. So you're not beyond science. No. The world will... Oh, no, I'm not going to say that. The world will what? Go on. Nothing. It's just dark. No, it's too dark. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm having a dark day. You're having a dark day. So that's your news, then, the Ryan, Orcas. Okay. Tell me what your news well, is. mine's actually whale-based as well. Yes. Mine's actually... Um, High five for cetacean. Mine's some good news. Uh, this was tweeted by the Whale and Dolphin Conservation Society. And I think this is uh, good news. Uh, long-time listeners of the show will know that we're not opposed against uh, talking about um, hunting on the show. So we're going to do a bit here now. Uh, we know the nuances and we're all comfortable talking about it. But this one is actually uh, a little bit different to how we usually talk about it. Um, fin whaling in Iceland has been suspended after certain officials um, say that hunts are unlawful. The Icelandic government has suspended all fin whaling with immediate effect until at least uh, until at least at the end of August on the grounds that it breaks Iceland's own animal welfare laws. On top of this, no new licenses have been issued for 2024 onwards. So this is quite a big step. You know, Huge. this is a country doing something for its own seas as well, um, saying that, you know, we have these standards for other animals. We're going to put this in for fin whales. And, you know, whale hunting is, is always a tricky one, isn't it? It's been done very badly in the past. There's still some areas where you see some whale hunting. And, you know, I'm not that clued up on these things, but on the surface, they don't seem very good. <laughs> so it's quite easy to look at it and go, oh, that makes me feel shivery. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's certain countries going, maybe we should be putting a stop to this. And, you know, if we've got certain standards. And it sounds like when they're talking about animal welfare, it actually says like it's not necessarily the hunts that they have a problem with. It's more how the, the mechanisms on how they do it. And I actually, I actually am kind of ignorant to that fact. I think I'd assumed that industrial hunting made a really quick, fast effort of it. But I'm, I'm going to make some guesses here and please do like, kind of write in with a pen and paper only <laughs> this peer box the peer box <laughs> um uh, i'm imagining that there would be like a chase involved and being that yeah. they are very intelligent sentient emotional beings yeah. um that might be quite a horrible thing to go through and then i guess that the, the killing might be a, a long process having said that i'm really really conscious of not having species supremacy um and just as a human I'm not. I'm. I can only speak from a human point of view. But yeah, I, I know what you we mean, do yeah. place certain hierarchy and ranking in different wildlife based on how close we think they are to us and our own human emotions. Yeah, um, exactly. But obviously, whales are like mm. like chasing like chasing any animal to to be able to hunt it down does not scream low stress. Like no, for, for, no. For, to be honest, for many people, or many animals or species, including our own, involved. Yeah. So I think. It, it does sound stressful, and I think it, it's these kind of things that you have to look beyond that surface level of, well, I don't like hunting. Like, is it, We often say this on the show, I have said it in the past with hunting and stuff, it's like, if you don't like hunting, there is, there is no method that you will think is 
acceptable. Yeah. But there's also different reasons for hunting. There's different needs. There's different, you know, it's all the same as everything is very complex. But to see a country say, actually, we've got these laws in for other things. It doesn't matter our current animal welfare standards. We should be putting this on here. Is maybe, you know, it's, it's probably a step forward. I can't see it. You know, and if it's not, I'm sure the people of Iceland will speak against it. It'd be interesting to wonder how that's made applicable to other kinds of fishing in the oceans. Yeah. So what is the welfare of animals that are caught in bycatch? Uh, mm-hmm. What is the welfare of the fish that are in a big net and then trawled in when they're all squashed in on top of each other exactly. in the back of a fishing vessel? How how do we apply intelligence and feeling and compassion and empathy to to those animals as well, sitting in, in yeah. great big whatever. I mean, I'm just going off images that I've seen on the back of fishing boats where I'm like, that looks like a really horrible place for any animal to be. Yeah, um, exactly. Except, I had a goldfish so called Fred and he <laughs> was incredibly intelligent and knew who I was and would come and talk to me, like like talk to me, you know, like spiritually. <laughs> so, yeah, spoke to you spiritually, Jesus. Not in the English language. <laughs> but yeah, that's great. Thanks, Ryan. It's, it's good to no worries at all. Um, I have got one more bit. Yeah. Actually, um, but I'm, I, I will read this out. The blunt-nosed leopard lizards returned to the Paneshi Hills in Plateau on May 17th, 2023. Five female and five male one-year-old blunt-nosed leopard lizards were transported from Frenzo Chafe Zoo in large coolers to Paneshi Hills for release. So there you go. Looks like... They're... Ryan, I have just Googled a picture of them and they are to die are they for. Absolutely... Mm. <laughs> no better description other than Oh, and they're nose. only little, they're only wee. I know, they, they kind of look like bearded dragons without the beard part. And I will say the picture I'm looking at that was on the US Fish and Wildlife um, Service, if uh, people want to like journey back and see, um, one of them's wearing a little radio collar. Oh, and it is adorable. <laughs> it's so I, the pi- adorable. Okay, well, the image that I'm looking at is one that's kind of stood up on its hind legs, a bit like a meerkat. They look like the ones that can uh, that the, they can probably run very fast. Yeah, those, yeah. Like, nice propeller, propeller that's nice legs. news. I want more news. I'm gonna look at more happy reintroduction news for next. Time, it's nice. It is nice. Um, right, should we move on to today's show? Yeah, let's do it. Right. Um, as Nadia said, uh, the reason why we're not doing some Nature in 101 is because it happened in the last show. And this episode is part two of our UK farming episode um, or farming in the UK. So if you haven't listened to part one, pause this episode right now. Journey Stop back what you're and doing. To it. Stop. For God's sake, man. Go listen and come back. It'll make more um, sense. <laughs> we like, what? So we might reference things that have been said in uh, part one. In part one, for a bit of a recap... Uh, listen up, everyone. We spoke about land use in the UK, the percentages, what we're doing on that land. We also spoke about food production from the waste element as well. And we spoke to Sue Pritchard from the Food, Farming and Countryside Commission and asked her her thoughts on what priorities should we be putting forward in the UK for food production and nature restoration. And is it possible to grow food in the UK for people in the UK that's affordable and protect nature? Now, we are going to hear from Sue with her answer from that in this episode, along with someone else. But Nadia, our research queen, has been looking at some different topics to talk about UK farming and its effects positively and negatively on our environment and biodiversity. So Nadia, what are we learning about in this section of this episode? 
Well, I mean, research queen is such a large title for how I research and what I know, but I'm going <laughs> to run with it. I've got delusions Sorry, of grandeur. Sorry, research emperor. Is that better? Empress? What about um, research... Um, runner. <laughs> runner. Temp. She does her best. <laughs> temp. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about... So we talked about how is our land used in terms of where do, what do we use our land for? Is it for crops? Is it forested? Is it for growing crops for animals and cattle and things like that? So we looked a little bit about the makeup of the land and how much of our food goes from land to the shops and the mm -hmm. wastage that happens and some potential quick wins and mechanisms for like rethinking the, the, the efficiency of how we harvest food and then get it into shops and a bit about that process. I think I just want to talk more generally about our method of agriculture in this country. And I am going to be talking fairly broad brush, but there is just so there's heaps of yeah. kind of research out there and you can, you can refer to all kinds of um, websites for that, but just more generally looking at the kind of agriculture that we have, looking at different mechanisms and like from a global point of view, we do use a really intensive agricultural system, which was employed and brought in during the war. <laughs> <laughs> during the war. Um, intensive food for the people. <laughs> obviously, in the response to the need for more food security, given the insecurity of being in a war. Was, was that war. literally, can I just ask, because this, this kind of shit is said a lot. Is that how this all started? What's this all? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I knew. I wish I I guess known. I think the question that you're asking me, Ryan, is like our pivot towards the kind of agriculture that's threatening ecosystems. Can you see why, nerds, I brought Nadia onto the show as a co-host? Because my kind of question is, is that how, how all this shit started? And then Nadia's more like, I think what Ryan is trying to say is... <laughs> I think if I can translate what Ryan's saying, which is a question that a lot of people have got, potentially, is that we talk about... Um, <laughs> we talk I'm getting about a beer. Okay, go on then. Um, so I think what Ryan is trying to say is you are asking that our problems with our agricultural system, of which there are many, mm -hmm. and I need to caveat everything with this, I say is like this isn't just a typical standard rant at farmers. I'm yeah. looking at systems. I'm talking about facts. I want to have some proper dialogue and discussions around ways forward that don't just involve money and land and what we do with it, but also the deeper social contexts which we need to operate in. But yes, the war was a really, really important pivot point where farming was made like kind of industrialised on a bigger scale. Right. So in terms of making farms bigger, removing hedgerows, um, trying to grow as much crops as possible, I guess a lot is around the thinking a few decades later, you start looking at um, our move into the EU and farming payments that paid farmers for the amount of food they produced. So there was a financial incentive to farmers to produce more. Um, I'm not sure what decade it was. I'm going to say the 90s. Tell me if I'm wrong. But there were I those stories in the news around there were like food mountains because people we were just producing more than we could actually do anything with because that's because people are driven by money, right? We're driven by money. Mm. That's what we do. Um, but... But there is a longer story of land history, which ultimately does underpin how we live. We once lived in a system of common land. So us, peasants, commoners, you and I, that's what we would never have been gentry. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm just guessing, Ryan. I'm guessing. Um, yeah, suits me. 
um, we we would have, like a lot of the globe, been peasant farmers, common farmers, where we grow what we eat and we share it in between our community. Mm. So there was vast swathes of land, which were common land, where we could put out our animals to feed and graze, and we all shared it and had a collective responsibility for it. There was enclosures are something that's happened over the last few hundred years increasingly and is still happening today but enclosures basically pushed peasants and commoners off the land so that great the great landed gentry big landowners those in favor with those in power could have vast 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 estates they could grow their estates so this started a really long time ago i think this cultural thinking started a long time ago so big landowners would literally clear towns and villages off land and be like, nah, you don't get this anymore. And we had a huge industry of sheep farming and wool. The money from that wool, so we had these very few landowners with people squashed into cities and urban areas, um, no longer being able to grow their own food. So then they had to use their bodies as labour to get money so then they could buy food. And so this is a system that's been going on a, a really long amount of time. There is still common land, but there isn't as much. And um, because of the way of kind of land ownership, what you have is common land is a common for those that live in and around it. But often what happens is wealth from the cities, wealth from really rich people will come Mm -hmm. and buy houses in and around common land and then they've got the common rights. So we don't really have the common rights to common land, Um, but there are a few bits and increasingly they're being taken away. So, yes, there was these great big areas of land. I'm doing a very, very short, quick version of a very, very deep and complex history. So do bear with me. And so there was huge industries, uh, particularly for wool, which amassed huge amounts of wealth. And then that wealth then paid for ships. So we could then, when we kind of were like, we need more land and we need more resources. We hooched off those ships around the globe, found new land and were like, mine now. Oh, you've got gold. Great. Oh, you've got this. Oh, you've got the ideal weather for sugar plantations. And so hence... The British were colonised first. That practice of colonisation was very much cut people from their ability to access land and their culture and growing food. And that works to get people under control because ultimately we need somewhere to sleep and to eat. And so we're now born into a system where the day you're born, you are in debt because it is your human right to to eat, to access water and to live. But you are born without any of the resources to do that because all of the land is already taken up. It's already been divvied up. Every baby that's born today, land's already been divvied up. It was divvied up hundreds of years ago. You ain't getting a look in. So this is like a complex system of what we have today. Mm. Um, But yes, in terms of our understanding of modern industrialization of farming, certainly around the war is when that was ramped up. It's, you know, it's one of the reasons that we look back to that period of time of like, that's when nature was good, even though that actually nature was... Nature's yeah. ebbing and flowing throughout millennia based on yeah, how yeah. we live and work with the land. But but there would have been so many more night jars and, and nightingales and skylarks. But that intensification really happened around that time. Also coinciding with investment in technologies, bigger farming equipment, so our ability to do more en masse. And so what does that look like? Intensive agriculture means that you are planting vast monocultures of the same crop. You're using heap shits of um fertilizer that you're plowing into the land that fertilizer really kind of impacts soil health we know that this is a really big problem and pesticides which you know have an impact on the insect population which is part of our bigger web of life so this is this is what we've got now and then the government kind of has to respond to ensure that 
financial incentives like work accordingly. So we've got this kind of food system. So it's messed up, right? We know it doesn't work. Some of the biggest drivers of biodiversity decline are pollution from farms and habitat fragmentation from having these kind of big farmed landscapes. So bit of a shit show in terms of what we got. None of what I've said means that there aren't farmers who care deeply for their land. Any human that has a sense of agency and connection to land has a very deep bond to it, any Mm. human. So I have a very deep, intimate bond with the hills around me. I don't own them, but it doesn't mean that that my care is not enough. I understand and respect that farmers who have farmed two, three, four generations have a deep love of their land and they want to do the right thing. They are constrained by the systems around them. And obviously, increasingly, because people have been urbanised and moved out of the countryside, they're increasingly isolated and they're increasingly demonised by often the well-meaning left. So, Mm. yeah, so we kind of got a bit of a messed up system where the way that we manage land ultimately is polluting rivers, it's destroying soil health, um, it's not resilient to climate change, which is a really complicated topic, but ultimately a really dense micro kind of mosaic of all different habitats can withstand really... Beavers, let's bring back the beavers, for example... (laughs) When we had the droughts last year, there was amazing aerial footage, and I don't know whether you saw it, of like an area where there was beavers and an area where there wasn't. Despite not raining for weeks and weeks and weeks, the area where there was beavers, vast swathes of land were still green because they were able to create these little micro kind of little habitats where water and moisture could be retained. Mm. When you reduce a landscape to one kind of monoculture and habitat, heavy winds, heavy rain, like heavy high temperatures, it can't cope with it. Yeah. So so even though climate change is causing big weather changes in this country, habitats that are more intact with diverse wildlife and like more diverse habitats are fairly resilient. Yeah, this is the thing, like a mixed habitat or something with, you know, a larger, more complex ecosystem can is built to withstand, like you said, different weather types of, you know, maybe not always as extreme that we're seeing with the climate crisis, but kind of you know, what would consider maybe like normal weather patterns and extremes in this country, they can, they're built to withstand it or recover during those times of extreme weather. Whereas where we've gone down this industrial kind of agriculture, whether it be monocultures or or drying up land and stuff, it's creating a harder, those those kind of environments are set for your bog standard temperate climate, which is just not a thing Nothing anymore. can go wrong. Yeah, nothing can go wrong as long as everything is 18 degrees and it rains four times a week, we're fine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if that's we just refer- not the case. It's just, it's just not the case. And if you look at yourself, like, like if I think about myself, you know, if I try and maintain like a healthy diet and look after myself and, mm. and get enough sleep, I'm more resilient, right? But yeah. if I just like run myself ragged, the smallest thing can make me snap. I very near, oh, I did, I snapped. I can yes. vouch for that. I was knackered yesterday and I got home to three parking fines. Not even parking. It was, I was driving in a clean air zone. I'm sorry, environment. But like, (laughs) I didn't know I was in one. Three times. Well, you weren't. It was clean before you turned up. (laughs) Oh my God. Um, But that made me snap, right? I didn't have the resilience to deal with it. I didn't have all the pieces. I hadn't been sleeping well. I hadn't been eating well. I hadn't been resting. I hadn't been looking after my mental health. I've been running on all of these things. Can I just say to every listener, we are fine. I'm okay. (laughs) We are I'm aware just on this episode so far, we've said quite a lot. So it's been really busy and we're shaking while we're talking about me me and Nadia are grand. I'm absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Are you crying? (laughs) (laughs) 
Tears of joy. <laughs> tears of joy. They're my tears Keep of joy. Keep carry on. <laughs> Just brush that under the carpet and scream Oh, we can make a cake out of that. <laughs> <laughs> right, so. so. So, that's a shame. It, yeah, right. For Next. all of us, right? Um, and <laughs> I think just shame. to bring in like the cost of living crisis, one of the big things that is, is, is like a point of conversation in the media at the moment, Brian, I don't know whether you've kind of locked onto it, but that heard increase it. it, heard it, it mate. Cost of living, feeling it. Feeling it. Change yeah. the record, mate. Oh, Next. God. I'm, don't worry, I'm 200 quid down now. Because I drove it. for one minute round a roundabout. That's all it was. I said, I said cost of living crisis the other day, cost me £5. <laughs> Got billed for it because it's painted. Can't talk about it. <laughs> Again, with um, the World War Two. Um, so, so yeah, like, so the intense amount of fertilisers that we use, because we don't have those kind of, well, I'll get into a minute as an alternative. Yeah. Um, they cost huge amounts of fossil fuels to make those fertilisers. So the increase of fossil fuels is one of the reasons why food prices are ramping up, as well as all of the kind of global conflicts that are going on in terms of how we move things. So there is an increasing kind of want I'm sensing from the public that actually we want kind of a little bit more food security. Why can't the food that we grow here? I think something like, you know, only a tiny percentage of the fruit and veg that we eat is from this country. We can actually grow so many different kinds of diverse fruit and vegetables in this country, but we, we kind of just move it around. I remember I read something years ago like we import the same amount of chickens from Germany that we export to Germany. Like some weird <laughs> kind of, it's just like, you just swap chickens it's like a, it counteracts until we it's, die. It's, 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 yeah, that's just like buying rounds in a pub. It can be pointless sometimes <laughs> because it's just, it's just... Yeah, it is for you. That's made me sound tight as f- and I'm not. But no, you're not. I mean? you're, Ryan will always be up for buying around. The, the well, first I don't, one. Don't, let's not shout that out on the podcast. I don't want to be like if going to the fair. you see Ryan, just ask him for a pint. <laughs> Not a bird spend, fair, though. Spend You're probably five pe- grand at bird fair because we're like, you're always up for buying rounds. <laughs> did you know? No, it doesn't matter. I had a did. fact about how much the bars make at Glastonbury. Oh, f***ing hell. But I don't know Guys, she like. went to Glastonbury, if you didn't know. I'm over um, it. That was on a farm. <laughs> Dairy farm? Yeah. I actually went up to, I was at the Greenpeace stage and there was a group of youths. <laughs> And they were having a really fun time, obviously. I would say there was about 12 young lads. Yeah. And they were doing nitrous oxide. And so at their feet, there was like 40 or 50 of, you know, those little aluminium canisters. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I was just sat waiting for a friend that works on the Greenpeace stage. And I was like, I can't just sit here in silence. So I... um, (laughs) That should be the name of your book. So I I had a big, long, floor length pink skirt on with a fabulous sequin vest. Right. And I went up to the young men involved in the incident. <laughs> I did so. I just bent down and I started picking them up and putting them into my skirt. So I, I gathered my skirt, like like how an old like wench might, might gather apples. <laughs> you are like a Tudor woman. Yeah, collected exactly old like cigarette butts. So after about ten, I just looked at them and I said, "Would you like to join in?" And then they all oh. started. Go- there and then they all started coming and picking them up and putting them in. And in I was like, dresses. "Now look!" And I was like, "Now look." cows graze the after glastonbury cows graze this and like mm. these are a really difficult thing to like you just like what if one of them eats one by accident or what like something happens and i was like if we can just pick them up they can also be recycled because it's aluminium it's great and they were like oh yeah but i think if i'd have gone in and been like uh can you pick those up please they'd have ignored me yeah but i went in with the old wenchy tudor skirt the wenchy tudor stuff method <laughs> you know that method where you just put just, something in a skirt. I didn't skirt. want to be that person, but I was just sat there like for half an hour just going, it's getting worse. No, it's fine. I think that's fair enough. Um, there's something... Oh, I was going to bring someone in 
bring someone in then. So I spoke to a young farmer called Ruby Free about um, something a bit similar to what you just brought up. So you were saying about um, growing fruit and veg and, and, you know, us importing more than we actually grow in this country. And Ruby spoke to me about something that I think aligns with what you just said. So I might bring her in here. That's all right. Should we bring her in? Um, Ladies and gentlemen, this is Ruby Free. Hello, my name is Ruby Free. I'm a writer and conservationist working as a campaigns officer in the wildlife ENGO sector. I also run a nature-friendly regenerative farm called Ballyconley Farm with my partner Craig. Personally, I think our top priority for food production in the UK should be towards upscaling fruit, veg and plant-based proteins. Where we choose to eat from in the food chain is key. Intensive animal agriculture and its associated land use contributes hugely to the climate and ecological crisis we're facing today. In NI, where our family farm is based, over 75% of the land area is used for agriculture, mostly beef, dairy and sheep, with fewer wild spaces than ever before. But it doesn't have to be this way. In fact, changing what we produce and how we produce it can actually help combat climate change and nature loss. Agriculture can be the very thing that saves it. Currently, just 2% of the fruit and veg we eat is grown in the UK. But this isn't because we don't have the climate for growing our own plant-based foods. It's because the money lies in animal farming, which is overwhelmingly not good for nature. Having said this, it's not that I believe animals don't belong in farming systems. In fact, I advocate for mega herbivores in farming systems. I just don't value these ecosystem engineers as a product, more of a wild animal, which is what they should be. Before modern day farming systems were even invented, pigs, cattle, ponies and sheep roamed the land as wild animals, brushing up against flora, disturbing seeds across miles of land and tilling their turds into the ground, promoting soil health and boosting organisms. Farm animals, or as they are ecologically known, mega herbivores, are vital for a wild and healthy native landscape. However, times have changed and farming these now very domesticated species to a point where they have to be kept as commodities and manually moved across land is not in any way natural or most importantly, necessary. I believe farming animals isn't ethical. Plus, the science shows us that even if every farm switched to regenerative meat and dairy, due to the decrease in herd sizes to make it somewhat sustainable, there would not be enough to feed a growing population anyway. Transitioning to a plant-based farming framework, eating less meat or better, none, and allowing nature to reclaim huge swathes of land that would otherwise be used to feed and house livestock is hugely important and must be done. This will not only provide us with more biodiversity, but a much higher level of food security. Sorry, can we? she said tilling in turds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember when I first heard this from Ruby, I had to go back and go, did she just say Tillington's? Such a beautiful image. Beautiful totally phrase. right. Um, no, it, I thought that was a, a really interesting point from Ruby, talking about the, the amount of fruit and veg that we grow here. And it's not because we can't. I think we've been fed this idea that it has to come from somewhere else, which it really doesn't. And I think, again, when we start talking about going to more of a, a plant-based farming kind of um system i think there's a few panics from people going well you can't just get rid of all the animals and stuff and it's but but she gives a bit of nuance here going we're not saying get rid of them they have spaces they have jobs to do here that you know our our ecosystems have evolved with some of these um, ancient breeds being here so yeah it's not a case of just getting rid of them it's about seeing them as something other than just a product to go into our mouths really and and there's so many points there like you could look at live animals not being stock and there's a fundamental moral principle there 
but mm. also the same way in which growing one big massive field of wheat is insecure based yeah. on what um what how monocultures react to the environment having s- huge swathes of just cows and cows and cows and cows with nothing else is also a problem so how do we integrate this kind of mosaic which is where i guess like the net model of rewilding is trying to say look there are cattle here breeding by themselves self-perpetuating their population providing a really important thing for the environment and then we eat them and we sell the beef and like obviously that's really expensive and that's one small model that Mm. is imperfect it's this example of all of these different things working together as much of a natural system can which brings me on to the kind of alternative which is this idea of permaculture and agroecology which is farming that mimics natural ecosystems so small-scale farmers produce food for 70 percent of the global population and it's kind of been proven it can produce more food using fewer resources. So there's less input in terms of like intensification, in terms of over, you know, the, t- the need to like water and water and water, the need to fertilize, the need to pesticide. Mm. That's hugely energy intensive. Whereas that small scale kind of agriculture in kind with nature, understanding how nature kind of works to retain water naturally, how the cattle tilling in turds is a natural way of fertilizing the soil, whereas artificial fertilizers actually break down the health of the soil. Yeah, yeah. So there are ways that nature can do things for the land. So um, I think one of the problems, we know that it improves soil health, it helps us adapt to climate change, reduces input and also increases biodiversity. So there are models of being able to grow food. The question is, can we do it at scale and can we do it? Can we make that change happen? Um, there are incredible organisations that I encourage people to follow and read about such as Land in Our Names, Lion, and Land Workers Alliance. Take a look at their websites to get a little bit of more of an understanding about what is food sovereignty and some of the issues around food sovereignty and what they're doing to combat it. One of the criticisms is that, oh, it's so niche. And it's like this imagined world where everybody's just a little farmer. And it's like, (laughs) if we can't describe an alternative model that's been proven to work at a small scale without being able to try and even upscale it a little bit, then like it's a moot point. We've proven it works on a small scale or people Mm -hmm. have proven. Ruby is proving as a really young farmer deciding to take it upon herself and her family. We want to farm in a way that invites the community into help, that benefits the community. So she's doing it. How do we invest or how does our system invest in that? And I want to make one more point um, on this before we move on a little bit. Just one. Um, it's really important just at the top of the program was talking about what underpins a lot of this and there's mass social injustices that's ended up with the system that we've got and um, one of the ways in which Land Workers Alliance is doing work to challenge the systems is around like seeds so did you know Ryan (laughs) (laughs) did you know like I'm watching like CBBS when this bit happens so seeds are like seeds are such a precious, beautiful thing. So once farmers held them, sowed them, gathered them, bred them, and exchanged them for thousands of years, that's how we've worked. Mm. Almost probably like a currency, I guess. Um, but in the 1990s, laws were introduced to protect new bioengineered crops. A lot of the food that we eat today are these kind of bioengineered, like we've got really high yield producing. Wheat, for example, and just four corporations control 50% of the world's seeds. Four corporations. Four corporations control how much? 50% of the world's seeds. And one of the ways in which they have tried to destroy and colonise the ability for other countries to have that sense of food sovereignty and safety is by going and introducing these seeds into areas 
removing the biodiversity there, but increasingly farmers then over a few generations lose that indigenous knowledge of how then how to manage plants and things like that. So the further cutting people from our ability to feed ourselves. So it's just, yeah, it's just taken away the hand that we had originally and then yeah. holding it And aloft. in a way we're doing that, right? You, people, you talk about our population, like, oh, no one knows how to cook anymore. And no shit. <laughs> Can't even <laughs> own a seed. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Or land to plant it. Yeah. You know? And you wonder why we can't make cocker van anymore. And then with increased increased provision of, of processed foods and availability of pre-cooked foods, kind of it encourages this like lack of being able to be resourceful. We'll talk about diets in a minute, but to Can I just say farming, I'm, I'm hugely disappointed you did not react to my pronunciation of cocker van. I think that's accurate. Is that accurate? I think it is cocker I've van. never been accurate with shit like that. Say petit pois. Petit pois. Yeah, there you go. No, he's not lost it. <laughs> God, I had a panic there. I thought it was middle class. I thought, no, Coco Van. Jeez, Coco Van. Oh, God, if there's any French people listening, again, unlikely. I mean, it's possible. It's accessible. I don't know any French people. You don't know any ask. French people? I must do. I feel like you must know more than me. Why? You're closer to France. Is that how that works? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a Venn diagram. The amount of Icelandic people you know. <laughs> Get out! There's Get one out. trying to come in. It's not an open house. Right, what's your last point before I interrupted with Cockervan? No, that's my that's my point on farming before we move to diet. So I think we can un- I I think that farming has to shift to invest in alternative models. A bit like what Ruby's doing, a bit like Sue was saying in the last podcast around different models need to be introduced we need to look after the health of our environment and yeah. wildlife in order for farming to, to keep going on otherwise and it's worth seeing right the why we're talking about this is because the industrialized farming whilst it's benefiting some people and it's working to an extent nature is reducing every year there's going to be a tipping point when the soils can no longer hold the seeds and when the crops can no longer manage in these kind of increasing changing temperatures and all of this stuff so we we have to find a solution now i think a nice to end this point on farming before we go on to diet, um, we asked Sue and Ruby the same question. And this question, we kind of labelled it as the big question because it was something we tr- kind of wanted to like navigate on these two episodes, was do you believe it is possible to grow affordable food in the UK for the people of the UK and restore nature at the same time? So I'm just going to share with you very quickly, first of all, starting with Sue Pritchard's answer to that question. Do I believe it's possible to grow affordable food in the UK? for the people of the UK and restore nature at the same time? Well, it just has to be. I mean, that that kind of either-or question just doesn't tackle the, the reality of the situation. We can't do without food. We can't continue as we are, taking biodiversity, nature and the climate crisis for granted, putting off action. We just have to be able to do both. But that will mean we'll have to adjust and adapt uh, what we eat, how we eat it. So much of our food production in the UK, but also around the world, gets directed into junk food, ultra-processed food, that's bad for us, it's bad for our health, it's a poor use of resources, but it also comes with all sorts of other issues, like masses of plastics and packaging. So we do need to rethink what we eat and how we eat it. But the great news is that healthy, sustainably produced food 
is within reach, within reach with the right plan and the right policy signals, the right market signals. We don't really have a choice. We just have to do it all. And Love Sue. I know Sue. You're a legend. I hope you're listening to this episode and you hear that. Um, I will also share very quickly Ruby's response to exactly the same question. To answer your question bluntly, 100% yes. It is more than possible to grow affordable food for the people of the UK that not only supports nature but reverses its decline. Transitioning away from intensive animal agriculture to a plant-powered food system that would free up massive areas of land is the answer. Plant-based proteins can be produced regeneratively and in a tenth of the area needed for meat. So, even if we were producing the entire nation's food, all within the UK, we would still have massive areas of unused land left that could be reclaimed by biodiversity. Producing more of our own fruit and veg would also make the supply chain cheaper and more affordable. The answer is clear, but it's going to take an awful lot of bureaucracy to get there. Food and farming should not be separate. It is part of an ecosystem that feeds us. We need to respect it because we are nature, not some separate entity. That's why I believe permaculture is the future. There you go. Those are two very, very experienced and knowledgeable voices on that. Um, And I'm sure everyone would have a different answer, but... Well, no, just going on the plant-based thing, I understand that that might make people going, like, I do believe that meat should form part of our diet. I believe that you can catch that yeah. from wild sources. I do agree and with I, this in as well. a really sustainable way. But also, I am vegan. So, yeah. I, I'm vegan. I'm totally respectful of the view that meat is an important part culturally um, of people's diet. And it's possible to, to hunt. And you know, I've been on a weird journey with this as well. You've from been on a weird a, journey. A, a weird journey with diet. I, as someone that was vegan for seven years and then suddenly had um, a bit of a, not, not massive health, you know, I wasn't didn't have, seek medical attention or anything, but it was just a very large energy crash last year that I decided to eat wild meat. Um, and it's helped a lot. So it's kind of How this... are the beavers? Oh, tasty as f- <laughs> <laughs> Squirrel stew tonight. Um, I actually would. I think I would, Grey Squirrel. I would. I would. I would. <laughs> I fucking would. Go on, then. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> you know me. Get it down, you sir. <laughs> um, for for people wondering, wild venison. But yeah, it's uh, it, it's turned me around. So it's it's a bit of a weird one because I always felt like I could do without. And then I think what I learned after about seven, six, nearly seven years, was just my body took a bit of a bit of a crash. So yeah, a yeah. bit of a weird relationship. Hey, sorry to interrupt the episode, Nature Nerds. It's Ryan, your host here. I just want to give you a quick shout out about something. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, accessible for everyone. However, running it is not free. If you would like to support Into the Wild and say thanks, then you can do so by visiting ko-fi.com forward slash into the wild pod. The link is in the write up of this episode. By doing this and buying us a coffee, you are helping the future of Into the Wild. Thanks very much and back onto the show. Let's talk about diet. So, Ryan, how is your diet then? So it seems like you've got getting it back on track. <laughs> yeah, it's better. I think I'm still getting there with some things. So I'm learning more about some foods that I eat, the impacts if I have too much soy or really any soy, <clears throat> then I really don't feel too well. Um, same with some breads as well. So I'm trying to cut down. I'm not getting gluten-free or anything Love like that. I just, bread. I just really cut that down as much as I can. Um, 
yeah, I think I'm getting there with it. I do. I eat venison twice a week, and that is venison that um, I get from Hertfordshire, very local to London. Where is it? Currently, Hertfordshire. Oh, Hertfordshire. I thought you meant the I thought you meant the deer <laughs> in the freezer, mate. <laughs> Hertfordshire is just north of where I am in London, so, so it's... that's for everyone listening in the north. That is one of the counties down there. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's not, if I said it's local to London, it's not going to be just south of Scotland, is it? <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, I wanted to just mention that consumer behaviour absolutely changes yeah. how we extract resources from the planet. So there's no two ways about it. What consumers choose to buy really can make a huge change. We've seen the, the veganism being one of like the increasing trends um, yeah, yeah. and beliefs that people have moved. It's one of the biggest growing areas of the food industry. Um, we've seen dairy farms being closed for preference to produce more oat milk. So there is that, there is a big shift in terms of sort of direct consumer choices, change how we use land. If everyone tomorrow decided, don't, I know this isn't how it works, bear with me. <laughs> if everyone decided tomorrow to eat organic plant-based diets, it would shift how we did farming, probably in a problematic way first, because capitalism will try and do it as cheaply exactly. as possible. Exactly. I'm glad you said that. Thank you. <laughs> but it does now. But changing people's relationship with food is one of the most deeply complex things that you could possibly do. How we eat and what we eat is so closely related to our life experience, our culture. It's related to trauma. It's related to so many lived experiences that we've got that make us who we are today in terms of our relationship with food. As a woman born in an era when everyone told me I needed to look like Kate Moss, my relationship with food has been incredibly driven by what's got low calories and what's cheap. Mm. So like, it's not as easy to say, we just need to change consumer habits. It doesn't yeah, yeah. work like that. Obviously, that's not just restricted to women, non-binary people and yeah. men also have... Um, you know, food eating disorders um, or disordered eating, should I say. So there's that. But also the food lobbying industry has a huge impact on what we feel about foods and what like. So there is a big lobby or mistruth around where we get protein from. I grew up believing that I could only get calcium from milk and I could only get protein from meat. It's simply not true. Yeah. You get really high sources of protein from other things, this obsession with protein when we, we generally consume more than we need anyway. Um, there is a really brilliant podcast. Can I give a shout out to another podcast? Yeah, of course can. Um, no. It's a, oh, okay. it's a different genre. It's a different genre. Um, it's a brilliant podcast called Maintenance Phase um, and it debunks all of, and it's, it's US based, but a lot of it is transferable in terms of the public health guidance that we get from the government, government who is lobbied by the food industry and they're given information about health and food from the food industry and the government kind of, this is what lobbying is, right? So we are just being compounded by messages all the time. Often, do you remember at school, you'd get that like food pyramid? Yes. Like you can yeah. have one piece of chocolate and two pieces of bread and then like, yeah. and, and then, then at the bottom, fish loads and... of grapes. And then, yeah, um, there is <laughs> That's like- all I was doing as a kid, just eating grapes. Just grapes. Yeah. Did I tell you my mom and dad have got grape scissors? Ladies and gentlemen, you've just seen how Nadia's mind works. <laughs> very, very well. That so information what, has been sat on that brain waiting <laughs> to tell me for God knows how many months. We've got a pair of scissors that sits next to the grapes, especially for, for cutting off a smaller bunch of the grapes off the larger bunch, so one might take it back to the sofa and then consume. 
See, it's I the most middle class bullshit I've ever heard oh, in my oh, life. I love that. Specific oh needs. They're not needed, but the specific things. It's like got a beetroot dish I've got. That what beetroot dish? You're not seeing the beetroot dish? No. Oh, it's it's so ugly, but my nan had it and I always found it hilarious. Like a little goblin face that just says beetroot on it. Do you only put beetroot in it? I feel wrong if I put anything else in it. Oh my what are you gonna Lord. put? What are you can't Why put haven't like... you ever offered me some beetroot when I've gone round your house? I'll be honest, mate, rarely have it. Yeah, so it just sits there taking up. It's very messy, isn't character. it? There's a lot Getting of spillage risk with beetroot. Very messy. <laughs> anyway, we digress. And so it's really it's really comp it, I think the messages that we get about what we should eat and when and how are so convoluted. Every individual is a different individual. Actually, our bodies largely need similar things, but we are all really different in our needs and our yeah, building yeah. and retraining and healing our relationship with food. A really important part of healing our relationship with food is having the opportunity to see it growing, to being in places and green spaces where it's grown and actually the opportunity to grow ourselves, which is an important reason as to why you cannot disentangle the food system from people. The same issue with the seeds not belonging to people we can't keep food growth away from humans, otherwise it will be this really massive power dynamic system. So I did want to do a little bit of research before the show to find out what is the British diet like compared to other diets around the world. I obviously went on an absolute... Suet heavy. Google... <laughs> suet heavy. For the what? <laughs> Everything suet in a sheep stomach boiled. Done. Oh, lovely. lovely. With some bread. Tucky. Some stale bread. <laughs> And so we do have a funny diet and I really, I really struggled actually. I didn't struggle. I just went down a wormhole that I didn't want to go down. What I really wanted to do was place British diets against like the rest of the world. A lot of the data I found was in relation to BMI. BMI is a crock of shit. Um, it's been proven time and time again that BMI is not an indicator of health. Ryan, what is your BMI? Uh, I'm in debt with mine. I think I owe it. Do you? <laughs> yeah. Mine's so low. Because, yeah, just no, I remember I, I got it done in my 20s. I think someone on the street offered to do it. Oh, good Lord. I was in one of those shopping centres. Do you want to know your BMI? And I thought, well, you know, why not? And then I did, and they were like, oh, dude, you're not well. And I thought, I feel fine. Oh, my God, this is the thing, right? Yeah. If you, if you want, if you're interested, type into Google, why is BMI a crock of shit as a way of understanding the health of a person? And it doesn't look at the wholeness of the person and how no. they live their lives. It's very much surface level. I mean, I look great, but I'm 90% pot noodle right now. I am not well. Because <laughs> I went to Glastonbury. Oh, Jesus Christ. You owe me a quid for every time you say it now. Tell you what, though, the food at Glastonbury is amazing. Huh? Just move on. Right. I stayed in VIP, I did. Yeah, you had a spare ticket as well, didn't you? <laughs> didn't have a spare ticket. Let's, let's take that off, off the podcast. So... Um, <laughs> So I then went into this wormhole on the BBC, which just, just feels like BBC website, which like I went on the food.gov website and it told me that I wasn't eating enough oily fish and I don't eat fish. And it recommends that you have to eat two portions of fish a week. So this is the problem. Where is that information coming from? I don't have to eat. I have to have the right amount of fats and the right amount of things, but I'm perfectly functioning. I've not eaten fish in eight years. Mm. Guess what? I'm here and I'm okay. So I did this quiz what? Where are you on the UK healthy eating scale? Are you ready to take this quiz? 100%. Let's quiz okay. me up. <laughs> you are 19 to 65, 64 years old, correct? By the way, what an age rate for this quiz. I'm 19 to 64. Are I you think. in that bracket? Uh, uh, yes, I think. <laughs> um, also, male or female, it's only given me those two options. Brilliant. Male it'll have to be. 
Take the test. How many portions of fruit of edge do you eat each day? Oh, uh, okay. I Three at the max. Not very good. Okay. So let me just say a portion of fruit and veg for an adult is 80 grams of fresh. For example, that's two satsumas or three hip teaspoons of cooked veg or 30 grams of dried. So are you saying three? Yeah. I'd say on average between three. Yeah, three. I'm or, going three. Yeah, three. Go three. How many of these sugary foods have you eaten in the last 24 oh, hours? <laughs> Level teaspoon of sugar, honey or syrup? Uh, in coffee this morning, so one. Two level teaspoons of jam? No. Small bar of milk chocolate? Well, not yet, but there is a whole bag of Maltesers in there ready for me to demolish Right, I'm going for that, yet. Yeah. <laughs> can of Coke or other sweet fizzy drink? Uh, I had a San Pellegrino, middle class yeah. fizzy. yeah. Bowl of breakfast cereal that contains sugar? Uh, not today. Slice of cake? No. Oh, but Biscuit? Nearly. No. How do you nearly have a slice of cake? I walked past a cake shop that looked amazing, but I didn't go in. Yeah, fair. Small pot of fruit yoghurt? No. Small glass of fruit juice or medium glass of squash? I've had two pints of squash. Oof. So Oof. small, so I'm going to go 2.5. Approximate one level of teaspoon of sugar from other food? Oh, probably. Shall I give it two? <laughs> just give it two. One. I had one. a. I, give me one. Me and Christina shared a bag of kettle chips. Okay, and this is going on. Let's make this quick. Right. How many portions of these foods have you eaten in the last 24 hours? Small bar of milk chocolate. I'm going to put one because you're going to slice of cake. No. Biscuit. No. Rasher of bacon. No. Sausage. No. I'm saying no for you. Chorizo. Chorizo. <laughs> no. Full fat mints. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Full That's my new nickname for you. Yeah. Cheddar, parmesan, or other hard cheese? There was some cheddar in the toasty I had, yes. Small pot of full fat Greek yogurt? Nope. Full fat milk and tea or coffee? Nope. Semi skimmed milk and tea or coffee? Nope, it was oat milk. Uh, level teaspoon of butter? <laughs> There's going to be in the mashed potato for dinner. Uh, large egg? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, coconut milk? N- no. Okay. How many portions of oily fish do you eat in a typical week? Probably one portion. How many portions of red and processed meat do you eat in a week? The, the only meat I eat is venison. So, does so that we'll count go as one portion meat? of venison? Yeah. Yeah, so it's in there. Yeah. Right, your results. Based on your answer, you eat less than the recommended minimum amount of fruit and vegetables and too much sugar. You also eat a healthy amount of saturated fat, plenty of oily fish, but you keep your red and processed meat consumption within safe limits. Oh, so... I'll get diabetes, but not heart disease. <laughs> it just doesn't really tell you anything. It and it's a really... <laughs> because that is based on today. <laughs> yeah, right? It's a really, really bad... The way that we talk to people about diets and what they have doesn't include anything meaningful or tangible. And so, yes, we all need to change our diets, but that's not going to happen until people reconnect with the food system. And this is why I think Ruby was saying it and Sue was saying it. It's going to take legislative change to make these things happen and to support our farmers with the support that they need in a full holistic way. Well, nature nerds, I hope you have enjoyed this two-part episode about UK farming. I feel like we've delved into many corners of this topic. Um, And as we said right at the beginning of part one, this entire chat was not to have a go at farming or farmers. It was to talk about the systemic problems within and the realities where we are, and the solutions to get out. So it's been great, and a huge thanks again to Sue Pritchard and Ruby Free for giving their uh, points and notes for these two episodes. Greatly appreciated. And 
that's the end of the episode. Yeah. Um, so next next episode's Room 101. Right, Room 101. I We would like to know for the next episode of Room 101, you can email us, you can send a pigeon, you can DM us on social media or tweet or Instagram at us, but we would like to know your least favourite media nature fail. Whoa. What, what bit of nature in the media did you see where you're like, that is getting it too wrong? Let us know. And probably many of them will go into Room 101. Shall I give people an example in case they didn't know? Go. Recently, there was something in the media that was warning people off all the toxic dangers of cuckoo spit. Yes, there you go. Wrong, because I licked some last week and I'm a fine. I'm a fine. (laughs) (laughs) That's how fine Nadia is. (laughs) So there we go. Anything you've seen in the news or media about wildlife or nature or conservation or natural science where you're just like, you could not be more wrong about this and this is just shit let us know and a reminder saturday the 15th of july myself and nadia and into the wild are live at global bird fair for a massive nature room 101 with three lovely guests come along come say hello and join us with the show but until then we'll see you on another episode and thanks for your patience for this one being late but we'll see you in july Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Into the Wild. You can find us on social media at Into the Wild Pod for Twitter and at Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to let us know your thing to go into Nature Room 101 or share a topic for Nadia and I to cover on the show, you can email us at intothewildpod at gmail.com. <laughs>